LT, my friend, it's almost upon us. The last ever wellness summit in Melbourne. The last one ever? Well, definitely the last one for at least two years, LT. That's right, this year's wellness summit will be the last one for the foreseeable future in Melbourne. It will be the biggest, the greatest, the most inspiring, the most empowering summit that you've ever seen. The last one in Melbourne? That's right, LT. That's ridiculous. I can't believe my ears. But I guess if that's the case, then let's go to thewellnesssummit.com if you want to enter the code FINALMELBOURNE16. That's FINALMELBOURNE16 to get $100 off your regular price tickets. You get to enjoy two days of food, movement, and mindset on September 10th and 11th at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Center. Hey, LT, did we say it's the last one? It's the last one in Melbourne. Oh, good. All right. I'm glad we told him. Hey, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. Enter those codes. Save some money. See you at the summit. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, this week on The Real Food Reel, we're doing things differently. We've had some requests that you don't get to hear enough of me, which is very kind of you. So today I'm handing over the mic to Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance Tri Coaching, and I am being interviewed on how to become a fat adapted athlete. Hi everyone, I'm excited to be on this side of the mic. Thank you, Steph, for having me. This is a a big topic. I come across it a lot with new athletes, current athletes, and in the general endurance population. I find that there's probably three main different types of athletes when it comes to talking about fat adaptation. And the first is someone that's very new to the idea, heavily reliant on carbs and perhaps is a little bit sceptical about how they could possibly perform without traditional methods of high carbohydrates or sports performance products. Uh, And the second is an athlete who has been experimenting and has a bit of trial and error and perhaps experiencing some side effects or some doubts about what they're doing and would like some clarification. And the third is someone that's been doing fat adaption protocols for quite a while, getting results in training and feeling brilliant. And the next step is applying that to a race for performance and essentially putting the cream on the cake. So what I'd like to ask you first off is what does the term fat adaption mean to you? Yeah, great. So fat adaption is a metabolic reorchestration from a predominant fuel source of glucose or sugar to a predominant fuel source of fat. So I'd like to point out that this is actually a normal preferred metabolic state of humans. This was what humans comfortably sat at before the food pyramid created the obesity epidemic. You know, humans were in a constant yearly cycle of fat adaption, and this was based on, you know, their location, climate, season, food supply, these sorts of things. So what you're saying there is that it's pretty much suitable for anyone to become a fat-adapted athlete. It is. It is just a really nice metabolic state 
which is created by eating nutrient-dense whole foods. It helps blood sugar control, which is super important, even if we look at productivity in an office worker. Yeah, definitely. So whilst this conversation is focused around endurance athletes, because that's what you and I love and that's what we do, it's certainly beneficial to, you know, the large majority of people. Okay. And so what are the most important points when it comes to that adaptation? Yeah, so I love this. And um, if we think about it um, really quite simply, fat adaption means you can effectively burn stored fat for energy throughout the day. So even the leanest person who might weigh 60 kilograms and has a body fat percentage of 10% still has six kilos of fat or 6,000 grams. So we know that each gram of fat has nine calories. So that's 54,000 calories to potentially access. The problem is that most people can't. That's a huge amount. (laughs) Absolutely. And not many of us have 10% body fat. So you know, it's obviously quite relative in that number and it can be upwards to 80,000. Mm. So for, for athletes, fat ad- adaption means you can rely more on fat for energy d- during training, during racing. So this offers a glycogen sparing effect so that glycogen, which is your carbohydrate stored in the muscle, is available to support high intensity, which is where it's most required. And for endurance athletes, this is most significant. A simple equation I teach all of my clients is this, and we're using round numbers here, but even if you're a very well-trained athlete who has maybe 2,000 calories of muscle glycogen stored, if you're a sugar burner who burns 1,000 calories an hour, it's clear you're going to run out of fuel at beyond two hours. Mm. So even if you're able to consume 300 calories an hour, which I don't recommend. No, thanks. But there's still a 700-calorie deficit, 1,000 take 300. Sorry, 700 calorie deficit. And I'm not saying you should replace everything you burn, but the inability to tap into our fat reserves is what causes bonking or hitting the wall. And if you're an endurance athlete whose splits just get slower and slower in a marathon off the bike or in an ultra marathon, you need to work on your fat adaption so you essentially never run out of fuel. And that's what I love about it is it sets people up for success and there's less uh, worry about hitting the wall and bonking because back in the day when we weren't uh, educated on fat adaptation, that was the biggest thing that used to concern myself and athletes that I worked with. It's like, what if I bonk? What happens? Like it's that vision of crawling down the finishing shoes and essentially um, what I'm getting from you is that fat adaptation sets you up to go for longer without that bonk. Absolutely, and you should be able to have a really consistent pace because Mm. I like to look at the fat uh, oxidation or the fat supply as being, you know, wood that just stokes that fire. Mm. So it keeps trickling in, trickling in. So, you know, nine or 17 hours into an Ironman, it's still available. You can still access what you've got on board. Yeah, and the other key thing that I find really uh, beneficial for athletes is because they're, mitigating that sugar or glycogen response and it's um, it's more consistent rather than large spikes is their energy and their mood and their concentration, which makes them more consistent as a performer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many benefits of fat adaption and that's what we're here to discuss today. 
Okay, so the ultimate question, how do we get there and become a fat-adapted athlete? I love this question because it's actually really quite simple. So there's two basic strategies I want um, our listeners to start to think about. So the first is to move towards what we like to call JERF or similarly LCHF, so a low-carbohydrate, high-fat approach. Now, this is particularly useful because it simply decreases your physiology of being a sugar burner that comes with a high-carbohydrate intake and allows you to shift into a a fat-burning state because you've no longer got that sugar available every 90 minutes or two hours. When you get four or five or even more hours between meals, you have satiety, you have a really stable blood sugar, and with that you have low insulin, and that is promoting an immediate fat-burning environment. Okay. A general guide, and this is, you know, obviously very general to clarify, we always say N equals one because nutrition is extremely relative, but a general guide that we start with is an intake of 15% carbohydrate, 20% protein, and 65% good fats. Okay. So just to backstep a little bit, when you say N equals one, you're talking about athletes experimenting with themselves and working out what works for them, right? Absolutely. So N is always the subject number in a, in, a, in a research study, for example. So if it was a research study of 300 people, N will, would equal 100. But in these examples, N equals one because you are the individual. So whilst we're giving you guidelines today, in no way are we saying this will work for you. There's going to be an experimentation phase, which is hugely important for your personal fat adaption journey. Okay, and the second point I wanted to cover was you mentioned carbohydrates being 20%. What form of carbohydrates are you speaking of? Great question. So it's about 15% carbohydrate and we always prioritise real food. I mean, JERF stands for just eat real food and our whole food carbohydrates have to fall in that category the majority of the time. So it's off a tree, out of the ground, or from an animal, and we're talking about carbohydrates, the best sources are always going to be fruit and vegetables. Okay, great. So we're not talking about pasta parties for 15% of your diet. No. I mean, <laughs> we also like to you know, wrap that real food conversation up in foods that have the least human interference. So pasta does not grow out of the ground looking like it does on the shelf in the supermarket. There's many steps involved in that production, which Mm. means the nutrient quality is going to be severely lacking compared to something that's almost directly off a tree. All right. Great. So what would be the second strategy you like to use? The second for fat adaption applies to training and it's called fasted training or training empty. So what this means is Usually you pick your morning sessions and you go out before breakfast and do your training. Because you haven't eaten, there's no immediate fuel available for your body to burn. So immediately you start training your body to tap into your fat reserves. You've obviously been sleeping hopefully for eight hours. So essentially you've been fasting for eight hours. And even if you were to add on a one-hour squad session in the morning, you extend that overnight fast and in training start to get better at utilizing fat to supply the energy you need to get through that session. 
within this conversation, it's important to remember that you've got to start gradual. So if you're a sugar burner or if you're an athlete that's never done fasted training before, please don't pick your four-hour ride. Start with a low-intensity session that might even be less than an hour. And as your fat adaption progresses, which we say is usually an 8- to 12-week journey, so somewhere along that line you want to start to progress those sessions. Take it towards 60 minutes, 90 minutes, and test how the body responds to having no exogenous or external fuel. Okay, so that all makes sense. And what I see happening with athletes is they look at their program and they don't know how to apply that principle because they have either they're in the middle of high volume or they've got lots of intensity. And so they sort of take the principle uh, at 50% and go, well, I'll just um, I'll go for... I won't take my gels till sort of 30 minutes into the session. Is that still going to work? Look, it's a start. It's better than taking a gel before you start, right? So if even if you're doing 30 minutes, that is your starting point. But maybe in two weeks' time you want to try 45 or an hour in four weeks' time. So we see it as an evolution. Yep. And if you're, a, if you're a huge sugar burner, you run the risk of bonking. So you always want to take something with you so you can get home. You might, you know, I have plenty of experience with athletes that are unable to do 90 minutes um, and if they don't take anything with them, it ends in disaster. So yeah. you always take a little serve of whether it's our Freedom Fuel or a no-bake energy bar, your natural sports nutrition so that you can get home and you might just wake it, wait another couple of weeks to till you have adapted more until you're ready to maybe do that 90 minutes. Okay. So you've mentioned um, sugar burners a couple of times. What do you classify as a sugar burner or how would someone relate or identify that they are a sugar burner? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things is we all come from a background of being told to eat every two hours. We also come from a country that follows a food pyramid that is heavily reliant on refined carbohydrates. So if, you're fo- if you've been following the food pyramid, if you've been having you know 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour in training, if you can't go for longer than two hours without a meal, if you can't fathom the idea of training with no food in your mouth, I can guarantee you're a sugar burner. We can also do blood tests to have a look. I mean, HbA1c is your glycated hemoglobin and it gives you a really good idea of your, of your blood sugar response, of your carbohydrate tolerance. Mm-hmm. It can tell us where you sit on the spectrum from fat burning to sugar burning. There are lots of other factors involved that I think are probably beyond a general conversation because it's very specific, but certainly when you work with a nutritionist, you can test these factors and apply it to sort of where you're starting from and where you're going to. Okay, sounds good. And so I know for me personally when I went through this process of becoming a fat adapted athlete and I've had uh, other athletes in the same situation is that they get that starving, hungry feeling as soon as they wake up. And for me it was quite a nauseous feeling, so I'd go and do those sessions and almost want to spew the entire time and I just found that so hard to work through and eventually I did and I was really glad I did and so for people in that position is there anything perhaps prior to that session that's a good alternative in that transition phase so they don't have to suffer through that sickening hunger feeling? Yeah absolutely and great question because we don't want it to be unpleasant we want to make the adaption phase as pleasant as possible. There are a couple of strategies for people that uh, can tolerate caffeine 
um, who, who have, you know, fairly good adrenal health. Uh, a coffee before you start can be really lovely. Caffeine has a mild appetite suppressant effect. It also promotes fat oxidation. So it has that, that nice double benefit there. Um, a fat black is a bit of a, a boosted coffee that has coconut oil and or butter in there. So those extra fats can be quite supportive and, and take the edge off that hunger. And those that don't drink coffee can simply do a, a teaspoon of coconut oil off the spoon. It takes the edge off again and it does really set the body up to burn that preferential fuel. Yeah, awesome. I know I was certainly sceptical and uh, but once I took the plunge and tried the fat black prior and or a teaspoon of coconut oil, it was life-changing and I, I never turned back and uh, I really encourage many athletes to try it's just particularly if you're someone who's susceptible to gi distress it's it's the way to go yeah i mean gi is the gastrointestinal distress that can be the undoing for many people's races mm-hmm. um and you know that is is often linked up with refined carbohydrates or a metabolism that's not geared towards relying on the uh or, or moving away from the exogenous fuel sources all right. Well, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, who wouldn't want to uh, avoid bonking? <laughs> I know. It's just simple math if you ask me. <laughs> um, so before we got on today's podcast, we reached out to ask for some listener questions. And a common one was, are there side effects to the adaptation phase of switching for, as to fats for fuel? Yeah, there certainly can be. And this is something I like to prepare all of my athletes for. So if we're moving from a traditional model of sports nutrition and all the food pyramid like we discussed, you know, we can, we can largely assume that a sugar-burning athlete that is transitioning to a lower-carbohydrate lower intake may go through what we call the metabolic grey zone. So you've got no carbohydrates coming in, or minimal, I should say, but you're yet to have a really great fat-burning ability. So the energy provision is low. Even in the place of higher than normal calories, you, you haven't got the fuel that you really like to use and you haven't yet got the fuel that we're trying to get to use. Okay. So initially, this can contribute to fatigue. Some people hunger, but we notice a bit of a performance shift because carbohydrates are always going to be the preferential source of fuel at sort of 90, 100 percent vo2 max if you're a sugar burner you rely on carbohydrates at most intensities so when you go out for training you haven't got the carbohydrates there to support that level of intensity so some athletes can experience that sort of flat feeling or lacking in the top end and that's completely normal and it's certainly nothing to freak out about it's actually a good sign that you're adapting and if possible you adapt your training schedule to suit. Don't do a time trial in week one of fat adaption, please. Mm, exactly. Um, the good news is for most people, though, this lasts three to four days. And it's a little bit of riding it out so that you can get to the point where you feel fat adapted and, and what you notice immediately is satiety. So one of the big positive side effects, if if we can if we can call a side effect positive, is is satiety. You go from insatiable hunger, snacking every two hours, to being well-fueled and not even 
needing to think about food for four hours or even lasting six hours in between meals. And most athletes find this concept unfathomable. They look at me like I'm speaking another language when I talk about not snacking. Mm. But we break it down and we look at lots of, lots of nutrient-dense whole foods, more volume, just less often. But the blood sugar control is what's life-changing. I mean, everyone's experienced the case of hangry, which we laugh about. It's hunger plus angry equals hangry. But that vicious cycle keeps you burning sugar. It upsets your life because you're looking for food every two hours. And when we're fat adapted, we move into the completely opposite physiological state. Yeah, well, to me, that just means that we're about to save a whole lot of relationships and co-worker relationships uh, from helping people avoid a case of the hangries, that's for sure. Yeah, it's not normal and neither is 3.30-itis. So that's all wrapped up in poor, poor food choices, poor blood sugar control, usually high insulin and the carbohydrate cravings and mood swings and a case of the hangries. Yeah, so if you're experiencing that, What's your number one piece of advice to people going, if if they're resonating with what you just said, Mm. what's your number one piece of advice? It's changing the way you build your plate. When you come from a food pyramid background, carbohydrates are always the first thing we choose. They're always the greatest proportion of the plate. And we're not trying to demonize carbohydrates because they have their place. But if you simply start to add them last to the plate and prioritize lots of green vegetables or non-starchy veggies, quality protein, good fats, you're getting an abundance of nutrients. You're getting a relatively low carbohydrate load, which immediately gives you satiety and that really nice blood sugar control. All right. And so what about the case of within training fueling? Great. So a couple of points I want to make here because N equals one and there are a number of scenarios, but let's just have a chat and sort of see where we go. But to start with, we always like to emphasize what we call train low. So this means starting fasted as we've discussed and working out how much or how little you actually need per hour. So if you're an athlete starting out, so you haven't been doing Ironman and you haven't been working off 90 grams an hour, We suggest you actually start with something like 30 or 45 grams an hour. It sounds like not very much, but it's a lot easier to work upwards than it is backwards. So, you know, we won't just take enough to survive at 30 grams an hour. We take a little bit more, but we run some tests. And the key indicators that we track are always energy, digestion, performance, and recovery. So, It's the athlete's responsibility to get out in the field and test these strategies, which we can then look at for race day. Mm. But, you know, training your body to need less carbohydrate in training is part of the method. It's part of the adaptation process. Okay, so you mentioned tracking energy, digestion, performance and recovery. For some athletes that would come quite naturally and they'd be quite intuitive with their body to understand those processes and be well aware But for others, I find that that's a relatively new concept. Can you just run over briefly what you'd symptomatically be looking for to track those elements? Yeah, well, I think you know when you have a good session. I mean, it's a good point, but you know when you have a good session because you come back feeling good. You don't come back and fall off your bike or you don't come back and need to eat the house down for the rest of the day. You know, in terms of digestion, a lot of people that come to see us at the natural nutritionist or a lot of people that move towards a fat burning 
scenario are doing it because they've had digestive issues. So you'll notice a distinct difference when you're not trying to shove 90 grams or 300 calories down your mouth an hour. So that's, that's going to be quite, the digestion side is going to be quite obvious. But performance, you might like to use numbers like heart rate or pace and just get a general idea as, as to, you know, start with the first session, make a few logs, you know, maybe write a few notes in your food diary or take some notes in your mobile phone and then do it again next week and just compare the differences. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing I was getting at is I find that people don't pick up on, or athletes don't pick up on symptoms because they consider these things to be normal. So for mm-hmm. example, gas and bloating, I find that athletes just put up with and go, yeah, I'm just going to fart the day away. It's just what I do. And they wouldn't pick up on that as an issue. Yeah. Okay. So I probably needed reminding of that, but yeah. <laughs> digestive upset is not normal and neither is, you know, neither is the gas and the bloating. So there's obviously an underlying issue there, which is definitely important to address because you'll absolutely ruin your day if that happens to you in, in your A race, in any race. Yeah. And I feel the same with even recovery. Um, again, it's considered somewhat normal to crash on the couch for six hours after a training session on the weekend and that's just what we do. But uh, I think the message that we're trying to get across here is it's really important is that doesn't have to be the case you know what? That's so true. And the number one positive response I get from athletes that dial in this approach is that they bounce back so well, like amazingly well compared to what they were going through. Yeah. And the big difference is, is when you move away from refined sugars, gels, too many carbohydrates, you're completely in charge of controlling inflammation. So when you're in an anti-inflammatory environment, your body can, can recover really well. You're putting it in the state that it absolutely needs to be in that post-training window in those days after after training. And that means you can get out there and perform better. So it's a really nice flow-on effect. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've just touched on training fueling there. What about race day slash race day morning? Is it the same principle? So there's two things to think about here, but... <laughs> and many athletes might be surprised to hear this, but you can apply your fasted principles right up until race morning. We need to think about an Ironman as not a nine or a 17-hour day, but as, as long as your swim takes you. Let me break this down. If you're swimming for, nine, for 60 minutes, then you can start fueling as soon as you're on the bike and your heart rate is stable and you're away from T1. So essentially, that's a 60-minute fasted session. It's not a nine-hour day. It's 60 minutes until you can start eating or fueling. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of athletes get really caught up in the fact that it is an Ironman and it isn't such a long day, and I can appreciate that, but we need to break it down. You don't need to be getting up at 3 a.m. to make your toast and go back to bed and factor in your blood sugar. This is a much more simple scenario your muscle glycogen levels should be full, provided you've been refueling well and you've obviously tapered. And you'll only have a really, really small depletion of liver, liver glycogen, which occurs overnight. Mm-hmm. And it's actually unnecessary for more carbohydrates at this time. And so if someone was going wanting to apply this to a race situation, how long uh, of a duration would you recommend they had been fat adapted or training with those principles for before they tried this on an Ironman or half Ironman day? 
look, it is quite individual. And I'd say to, to be safe, let's go 12 weeks. So yeah. if you've obviously got a strategy that you've been using and then you start this journey, keep your race morning strategy as is and tackle it post-race. You can still eat on race day, and this is the second part of the point I was trying to make. As long as you've practiced it in training, you can eat before racing, and that's absolutely fine. But when you keep it low carb and prioritize good fats and a little bit of protein, maybe even some veg, you don't get a blood sugar spike. You don't then set yourself up to need a gel before the start, a gel in T1, and so on and so forth. I mean, Fueling that much is not only a logistical nightmare, where are you going to carry it all, but you set yourself up to bonk, like we've discussed, and you set yourself up for the potential of digestive distress. Yeah, and we know what the uh, the toilet cues are like pre-race. <laughs> so if we can do everyone a social service to minimise those cues, I think everyone will be oh, happy. Oh, having nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing to think about, though, when it comes to um, racing is so we spoke about train low or training low. The mm-hmm. other side of the coin is actually called race high. And this is the strategic use of carbohydrates on race day. So even if you've practiced uh, the majority of the time at, say, that 30 to 45 grams an hour that we mentioned earlier, that doesn't mean that you can't take more on race day. It's, it's one day of the year. It's not your 12-week build. It's a really, really small drip in the ocean drop in the ocean so you know if you feel like you're going to be racing at higher intensity you want to get on the podium you want to get to Kona it's fine if you take a little bit more but you have to have tested it you want to make sure it's logistical you want to make sure it's good on the guts (laughs) and you you should obviously trial that in training so what we do with our athletes is we we run two scenarios in training majority of the time is training low and then there'll be one or two sessions or three sessions where it's the race day replication. So we go out in the field and it will be the six-hour bike ride that you do towards race day where you set up what you're comfortable with on race day and what that looks like. Makes sense to me. And, I mean, on a personal note, this was life-changing for my Ironman build and my Ironman day in general. It was just so refreshing not to have any of those gut issues. I had some cashew butter about an hour, half hour before the swim start. There was no hunger. I had my fat black before as well, but obviously the performance gains of caffeine. And it was just so nice to have that energy stabilisation and not to get on the bike with that heavy legs feeling um, that traditionally I would have had, you know, back in the day when I had gels five minutes before the gun went off. That's an important point actually because... Not many athletes link that feeling up with their fueling. They think, oh, I've just got DOMS or I'm just nervous or it's just a bad day. But it actually can be a byproduct of your blood sugar. You might not feel hungry in the tummy because, well, there's many reasons. There's race day nerves. There's blood flow being diverted out to working muscles, heart and lungs. But the heaviness in the in the legs can be certainly um, down to a, you know, a poor fueling strategy. Okay, and, and that also brings me to a question around the night before the race, and I know you've written an article on, on carb loading that we can link everyone to, but specifically, let's not go into that whole big can of worms, but uh, the night before, is there anything different that athletes should be looking to do as a fat-adapted athlete prior to a, a 70.3 Ironman or even a, a large day of training? Yeah, for sure, and I think this is an important point because We're not demonizing carbohydrates at all. Like we're just being really sensible with our intake. And a lot of people work really well with this scenario. 
you have your good fats and your protein and your vegetables, but you add a small portion, maybe half a cup of starchy veggies to your dinner. And that can just give you a little bit more food, top up any muscle glycogen that we might not have covered during the week. And even just psychologically set you up to feel like you can go into that race fasted. It's a great training strategy as well because, of course, if you're using it on race day, you would have practiced it in training. So if you're doing a, a long bike ride on a, on a Saturday, for example, and certainly your plan is to push the boundaries on your ability to go fasted beyond, you know, beyond the standard 60 or 90 minutes, then absolutely have a little bit of sweet potato with dinner and that can be your pre-race meal. Nice and simple and a really great strategy to play around with. All right. I love it. Let's get into the stuff that we love the most, the common mistakes. What, what are we getting wrong? Yeah. So this is a really interesting conversation because, you know, it's a, I feel like in our world, this conversation is growing and growing, which is absolutely fantastic, but we need to look at you know, all of the points to make sure that we're not missing key factors or certainly, you know, we we have to move away from just looking at food and training. We know that a holistic approach, a whole lifestyle approach is really important. And some of you might be surprised to hear this, but the number one barrier to fat adaption is stress. So in a very short physiology physiology lesson, In situations of chronic stress, our adrenal glands produce the hormone cortisol. And this is actually part of our natural fight or flight response. And it's normally really necessary to human function and survival. But the role of cortisol is actually to stimulate the liver to release glucose into the bloodstream. And so in the caveman days, this was important because we needed fuel to run away from whatever was chasing us. But in modern days, this this glucose, this this excess glucose being dumped into the bloodstream inhibits your fat utilization. It's actually like a very simple equation that we really, really need to avoid. And I mean, I know you see this, Katie, day to day. Chronic cortisol, chronic stress will overwork the adrenal glands and it can end up as far down the rabbit hole as adrenal fatigue. And, and that's not to be taken lightly. Stress stress management is hugely important because endurance training in, in itself is a stress. Yeah, we need another 24 hours podcast to talk about that. We topic. will next time. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think the other important point to make is that your body interprets physical and mental stress in exactly the same way. Uh, so when we talk about stress, we're not just talking about uh, a business meeting or we're not just talking about training. We're not just talking about the thoughts in your head. It's everything because your body perceives stress in exactly the same way and all those things are going to inhibit that fat utilisation. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of athletes also have this new normal. They, you talk to them about stress and they firstly think you're a total hippie. <laughs> but, but then, you know, we come around and they talk about their lives and, you look at some of their coping mechanisms, even their personality traits, and they have just completely adapted to this high level of stress that they now feel is normal. And so for a lot of these athletes, we do our adrenal testing, so salivary profiles, and we actually have a look at their cortisol production at four times throughout the day. And some of the results are off the charts. And that can really affect fat adaption. For a lot of people, it's a barrier to their compositional goals and it has some really detrimental performance effects as well 
and not on their performance, on their life. It makes mm. for a pretty miserable time. Mm. We can definitely avoid that. So common mistake, but the outcome is certainly stress management. And the research clearly shows us how beneficial mindfulness and meditation can be. I know, and that's such a simple statement, right? But the we, I, I certainly can't stress enough, pun intended, the impact it has. Like even just 48 hours, try it. Mindfulness once a day and it will literally impact your life straight away. A lot of people are diving into nutritional changes or new coaches, new programs, new training regimes and wanting results now. Those things take a little bit of time, as we've discussed. Um, But if you want results now, the answer is meditation. Very true. What other mistakes do you see? So the most common mistake from a food point of view is definitely the inefficient nutrient timing. So I like to turn the nutrient timing um, quite simply as that you do prioritize real food carbohydrates in the post-training window. So we haven't touched on this yet. So I just want to clarify this is as being a really important refueling strategy. So after high-intensity exercise in particular, where our muscle glycogen has been depleted, there is a replenishment window. So we do want to be adding those sweet potatoes or bananas or other veggies, even a little bit of quinoa here and there um, post-training. That's really important. And I don't want people to dive too far into LCHF when there's absolutely no reason. Now, everyone is really different with their carbohydrate tolerance, but the thyroid gland also really needs carbohydrates to support it and to prevent things like adrenal dysfunction. Mm. So we want to be consuming the real food-based carbohydrates in the post-training window But one of the mistakes that people make is they still rely on carbohydrates too much outside that window. So remember the simple scenario is too many carbohydrates, too much insulin, which shuts off fat burning. So we're a society that is wrapped up in consuming too many carbs. So that transition can be quite challenging for some people. But it's a a matter of working with the, the, the right foods at the right times to obviously feel well-fueled, plenty of energy, um, so that you're not always relying on those carbohydrates with Can each meal. example of a serving size or a type of real food carbohydrate you'd be recommending to athletes in this scenario? Yeah, it's as simple as a piece of fruit. So you might make a smoothie post-training and throw in a banana. Um, you might be having steak and salad and you'll have some sweet potato chips and it's about half a cup. Okay, brilliant. Um, The last thing I'll say on that, though, is that it's an 8- to 12-week period, but what we experience over that time is far better carbohydrate tolerance. So whilst you may need to be at 15% carbohydrate on day one, in most cases, that can increase over time. So you can start to be a little bit more flexible. You can go out and have whatever you want. I have one athlete in particular that went to Asia and ate white rice and certainly wasn't able to follow our plan, but because he was quite deep into his journey, he was quite well fat adapted, that was a blip on the radar. He came back, got back onto his jerfs, onto the program that we had put in place, and it was smooth sailing. Yeah, simple, hey? (laughs) Now, the third mistake, and this is one that I really wanted to touch on, um, 
because I feel it's, it's, you know, it's really important is a phobia of fat. So a lot of us has come from calorie counting days. Certainly the low fat industry was huge for the last or has been huge for the last four or five decades. And this still trips a lot of athletes up. I have plenty of examples of athletes that are all across JERF or LCHF, but they're still afraid of these foods. They're now free to eat butter and avocado and full fat versions of their favorites, but they have this barrier. Mm. And the problem is, is that you can't cut out the carbohydrates and fat at the same time. Absolutely. That will leave you hungry, fatigued, hangry, hangry, and the rabbit hole continues. And remember, when you start, your fat intake's over 60% of your daily, of your daily intake. Mm. So you need to be relying on, you know, we say at least or about two portions of good fats with each meal. So a simple example might be half an avo and 30 mils of olive oil on your salad. You've got to have enough because that helps you with your satiety. That extends the window between meals, which comes back around and keeps you fat adapted meal to meal. Yeah, I agree with you on this one in a big way. I see this as one of the biggest barriers that I've come across and the hardest thing for people to come to terms with, like letting go of their, uh, I was going to say some brands then, but I won't, uh, <laughs> low-fat yogurts and milks and so forth. Um, so can you point us into a direction of some resources for people that are very new to um, LCHF and not quite ready to let go of their low-fat products and not quite understanding the benefit? Yeah, so in terms of resources, I mean, there's some fa- fantastic books out um, at the moment. Um, I mean, I've got many favourites, but one that comes to mind is called Good Calories, Bad Calories. Gary Torbs, um amazing researcher. He's been around for a very long time, but he does break down the difference between, you know, that, that a calorie is not a calorie, that we need to consider the nutrient value and certainly the physiological response um, and how, you know, just because the word fat has, well, is linked to fat as in being overweight, it doesn't mean the same thing. Um, in terms of, I've got a couple of articles online that I can pop in the show notes, but the perspective is that we we want to think about these foods as, as where they're coming from. There is no way an avocado can be bad for you when a commercially produced cereal that I won't mention is, is <laughs> low fat and, and inverted commas healthy. I mean, we just need to use common sense. If it comes off a tree, out of the ground or from an animal, you're safe. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Tick. Done. <laughs> Give me another mistake. Yeah, this is a big one, actually, particularly those that come from either a little bit of a, an overeating background or certainly a gym environment, and that's excess protein. Mm. Excess protein is actually converted to glucose by a process called gluconeogenesis. And immediately, the glucose interferes with your blood sugar control and promotes high insulin and stops your fat burning. So, you know, 20% protein is actually only about 85 grams a day for someone like me that might have 1,700 calories. Even a male that would have 3,000 calories wouldn't even need to eat 150 grams of protein a day. That's not much food. Mm. So keeping it to, you know, a small palm of meat, fish, chicken, et cetera, with meals or three eggs in an omelette and only eating three meals a day is usually right for most people. It's obviously relative, but we definitely don't need to be having, you know, 400-gram steaks and 
protein shakes six times a day. <laughs> yeah. And so the message is load up on your avocados, your butters, your seeds, your nuts, your flax seeds, and enjoy your uh, your fats. Absolutely. And certainly prioritize vegetables. I mean, it's two cups of veggies as a minimum with every meal. That's where the nutrients are. That's where all the vitamins are. That's where we get our, our natural fiber to help our digestion. It's really important to have as that, that amount of greens with um, as many meals as possible. All right. So you've got uh, one last mistake here that athletes make and probably the most common one we see uh, on race day with athletes falling apart even though their prep has been sensational and they've nailed everything to the T. What's this last thing that they get wrong? It's actually low salt intake. So um, I guess it's wrapped up in our fear of salt giving us high blood pressure and killing us, which is one of the you know one of the biggest dogma-based myths of the, of the last sort of four or five decades. But an important consideration is that we're not talking about table salt. We're talking about quality rock salt, Himalayan salt, pink salt, whatever you call it. But as you become fat adapted, your kidneys excrete quite a lot more salt. So we need to be replenishing that. We need to be adding salt quite liberally to our foods um, and certainly factoring that into a fueling scenario. If you're a big sweater, if you're racing in a hot climate, um, your salt intake can be quite high. And athletes who experience poor performance or fatigue or we call it salt bonking, it's like hitting the wall even though you're fat adapted. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. <laughs> you need to be testing higher salt intake in, in training and racing. Yeah, so that just brings it back to the principles that you've spoken about before, that this is really important to test and trial in training over an extended period of time of 8 to 12 weeks so that you get that salt intake right because it's better to have a salt bonk, as you say, in training than on race day. Yeah, and there's some strategies you can use. I mean, simply starting with a um, um, a sweat rate test. So you, you go out for, well, you weigh yourself naked, you go out for an hour run, you weigh yourself naked, where one kilo loss means you have um, a loss of one litre an hour. That's obviously your water loss. Uh-huh. And then you can start to factor that into your hydration plan but then if you if you think you're quite a big sweater, it actually can really help to go and get some testing and you can do some sweat salt testing with your local EP, your exercise physiologist, or even some doctors have um, the right equipment that was used to test um, children. So you can actually work out how much salt you're losing, which okay. can be really important for those that maybe have um, not quite got their, their sodium intake right and maybe learn the hard way. Well, anyone racing in Asia or Hawaii, that's you. Yeah, absolutely. Get to it. Uh, Before we get to our final questions, I want to insert some questions we got on our social media page. Yeah, awesome. Is fat adaption for everyone? So we touched on this at the start, how it is a natural human state. So it can offer benefits for everybody, but not every athlete needs to go down this pathway right now. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if an athlete's lean, metabolically fit, racing well, training well, then they don't need to change anything. But they need to think about their longevity in, the, in, the, in their sport. The problem with too many carbohydrates, as we discussed, is inflammation. If you've got the uh, predisposition to diabetes, you're you're absolutely asking for trouble. You're playing a game of Russian roulette. So 
I think everyone benefits from reducing their refined sugar. And I think it's something that all athletes should at least research and experiment with because nobody wants to bonk and nobody wants to give themselves diabetes. I mean, Tim Noakes is an example of that himself. Mm. And once you've got it, it's, you know, you're managing it for life. So there are lots of factors outside of, oh, I'm lean and I'm racing well. We've got to think about our long term in the sport because don't we all want to be racing in, on the podium when we're 60? Because that's probably the only time I'm ever going to get on the podium. So I'm going to be there. <laughs> I'll be there with you, baby. <laughs> awesome. And another question we got was, how do you know if you're fat adapted? Yeah, so this is a good question and it is wrapped up in what we've covered today. But the biggest thing we notice day to day is that you smoothly sail from meal to meal and there's four or five or six hours. So you're not hangry, you're not starving, you're not needing to incessantly snack. Simple. When you get your satiety right, you, you know you're at least on the path. And from there, allow yourself the eight to 12 weeks to adapt. Secondly, if you can go out for an hour or two, like I've got plenty of athletes, we even do it ourselves, two, two and a half hours on a fat black or just on water and salt and lemon. Yep. You're clearly fat adapted because your muscle glycogen stores would last, you know, 90 minutes, two hours as we've discussed. So if you're going beyond that, you've definitely got a, a decent provision of fat coming into the equation. Okay, so leading from that question, um, is there any, you mentioned some tests, but are there any other tests that we can do as a fat adapted athlete for performance? Yeah, absolutely. And this is what a lot of my athletes have, um, and I have been working with. So when you go and get a VO2 max test and you test your maximal oxygen consumption, um, you also test your RQ or your respiratory quotient. Now, this is the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen. So it's the carbon dioxide you produce versus the oxygen you consume. So an RQ of 1 indicates you're a full sugar burner and an RQ of 0.7 indicates you're a full fat burner. So most athletes that I see initially will be a 1 and we work through their fat adaption and we get them at 0.8, which is you know a fairly well fat adapted athlete, and we see athletes moving towards 0.7, which is you know amazing if you ask me. All right, great. Do you see that often? I've only really started using these sorts of tests in the last year. So I don't have lots of examples but of, of 0.7. Mm. But, you, you know, the benefits that you get at 0.8 are fantastic. It, you know, even if you're getting an extra sort of 300 calories from fat per hour, when you're in the state of fat adaption, you you obviously have that that 300 calories that you can access on board and you might only need to top that up with the strategic carbohydrates that we've discussed because you use the carbohydrates so much more efficiently. So when you take a freedom fuel or when you take your, your carbohydrates in training and racing, your body responds. It's kind of like a person that hasn't had caffeine for two weeks and then they drink a coffee. <laughs> Maybe not as um, not as shaky and dramatic, but, you know, you get much more um, benefit. You get much more of a, of a response. Yeah. Um, I love the VO2 or RQ testing because it's that tangible evidence and a lot of athletes are quite number orientated and it's fantastic to see where you start from and then, a good indication of where your metabolic reorchestration has got to after that eight to 12 weeks. It's, it's clear data that you can work with. 
And I think this is also an important point when people are considering um, looking at the scientific research because even if there was an, an enormous amount of studies out there, there's not yet, but we'll talk about that in a minute, um, I feel personally, I see this with myself and with all my athletes and the wider community that even if those studies were done, that's not necessarily going to apply to everyone either. So this is the best way to know if this is the right approach for you and whether it's working and and measure those performance gains. Yeah, it's a great point because most of the studies are done on elite male cyclists at this stage. I am not an elite male cyclist and I never will be. So we also need to think about how most studies, other than the faster study, which we'll cover in a sec, but most studies are done um, way too early. So someone's tested at week two with fat adaption. And of course, they're not performing very well because they haven't got the fat and have not, and they're not eating the carbs, and that's that metabolic gray zone. So, lots of these tests um, are false negatives, and like you said, the um, the subjects aren't. We, we're not able to apply that to our own lives. Yeah, I agree. It's a really important point. And so, you mentioned the faster t- study. Tell us more about that. So, it's a study that's um, started in the US. And um, it's looking at fat-adapted athletes. So the results are sort of still coming through and it will be some time, but it is going to be totally revolutional in terms of what we know about athletes. Um, the It's with Jeff Volek um, predominantly and, and one of the main athletes is Zach Bitter, who's a really famous um, ultra-marathon runner. Okay. But it's... It really just takes us through, obviously, how you get fasted, but certainly how that applies to training. So what sort of performance benefits are possible? And we're seeing absolutely amazing numbers coming from these athletes. You know, they're able to burn so much fat per hour, which, you know, sets them up to be absolutely bonk-proof. So it's it's still a a little bit off being published, but the point is, is that we're really just touching on the surface of how much fat it is possible to burn. So why not trial it for yourself? Because if you can get benefits now rather than wait, trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. Self-experimentation all the way. So we've covered a lot. Um, might have shaken up some brains today. <laughs> I hope so. thought. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how do athletes get help with fat adaptation? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's important to remember that athletes, they don't need to do this alone. Like it's great to have your little support network, whether it's a, a coach, a nutritionist, a holistic GP, whoever it is. So, you know, we've got a couple of program options, which is how we support athletes through their LCHF, their JERF, I'm using lots of acronyms, but um, through their fat adaption journey. Um and we have one that's our high-performance fat loss program. This is for athletes who are, are trying to get to race weight. And we also have our elite performance program. And this is for those already at an ideal body composition. But both um, offer the support an athlete needs to change their day-to-day nutrition, to change their training nutrition, to go through that first 8 to 12 weeks and then be set up for the long term. So for most people we say, you know, please don't start two weeks before an A race. <laughs> Come and see, see us at least eight weeks out from a race or ideally in the off-season so you've got plenty of time when your training intensity is low um, to really dial in on your nutrition. Which um, for those athletes in Australia now is 
the perfect time when we're well, a good eight to 12 weeks away from the main race season. Yeah, we are. We're starting to plan for next season now. So now would be the perfect time. And we're, we're fully booked at this stage. Well, I'm fully booked at this stage, I should say. But times are opening up with Renee, who's fantastic. And certainly um, I encourage athletes to, to start to think about that now so that there is a time available for them. Um, so that we can set them up for, for their race season. Brilliant. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? Look, I think that's absolutely fantastic, and I hope it's been helpful to everyone today. In the show notes, I'm going to pop my email address so that if anyone's got any other questions, they um, can certainly shoot me a personal email. I'll pop some studies in the show notes for those that want to learn more about Um, other studies I don't know we didn't have a lot of time to dissect them today I'm just conscious of the time that we have been chatting already Um, but we'll pop some show notes together and I think what we'll do from here is um, you know we'll just have a have some more podcasts I know you and I Katie have got a few topics we want to discuss and so we'll just keep that happening on the real food reel yeah definitely and feel free to submit your queries and particular topics that you'd love us to cover because Steph and I are are very good at having a chat and we're more than happy to (laughs) I'm actually pretty happy that we kept this under an hour. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. <laughs> Thanks well, for listening. the entire truth, but uh, <laughs> see what the initial time comes in at. <laughs> Very true. Thanks for listening, team, and we'll see you next week on The Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.